Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I have to start off this week's podcast with a mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. In last week's podcast, the fourth episode on Mary, Right at about 19 minutes into the podcast, as I talked about the council at Ephesus, I said that the council proclaimed that Jesus is the mother of God. Duh! Obviously, I meant that Mary is the mother of God. Stupid me, I burn with shame. What a total idiot. I'm sorry about the misstatement, but I did want to correct it before moving on, lest anyone think I'm a total moron. I just hate when that happens. If you ever hear me say something that's inaccurate or stupid, either in class or online, let me know and I'll correct it right away. Well, now that that's out of the way and my conscience is clear, well, at least regarding that, let's move on to this week's podcast. Labor Day has come and gone, and that means the start of a new academic year, the fall quarter of 2018. I've spent so long in the academic world that for me, the year starts in the fall as freshmen flood the campus. I've always looked forward to the start of school, to new beginnings, and to new faces. I've taught through the entire Bible, verse by verse, Genesis through Revelation, for upwards of 30 years now, both on campus at UCLA in my year-long English Bible as Literature class, in parishes throughout Southern California and Arizona, and globally on the internet. Over 20,000 students each year download my courses from audible.com. Hundreds are enrolled in the Logos online classroom And I have my band of loyal students in four live classes in San Diego, Orange County, and Los Angeles. Over the years, well over 100,000 students have joined me on our journey through the Bible together. I'm both delighted and very humbled by that. And I treasure each one of you. I truly do. In all those classes, though, I've taught through the common canon of Scripture, those 39 books in the Hebrew Scriptures, or Old Testament, and 27 books in the New Testament that all Christians agree upon, 66 books in total. Yet, Roman Catholics have 46 books in the Old Testament for a total of 73, while Orthodox Christians have 51 books in the Old Testament for a total of 78. So what gives with that? If St. Paul is correct in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, saying that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, then we need to understand what all Scripture is. How do these books, whether 39, 46, or 51 in the Old Testament, come to be there? Who decided what's included as scripture, how was it decided, and when was it decided? 
These are really important questions, and we're going to answer them as we start our new quarter studying the deuterocanonical books of Scripture. Those are the books in Roman Catholic and Orthodox Bibles that are not in Jewish or Protestant Bibles. Now, in your own denomination, you may or may not recognize these books as canonical, but as educated readers of Scripture, you need to know about them. Ignorance isn't bliss. It's just plain ignorance. And as St. Paul said in a different context in Romans 11 at verse 25, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers. In fact, there's some really good material in these books, material that sheds a light on our developing faith in the early church and that sheds a light on our relationship with Christ. So I hope you'll join me in our live classes in Carlsbad, La Cañada, Cyprus, and San Diego on Mondays and Tuesdays. But if you can't, no problem. You can register for class as a remote student by going to logosbiblestudy.com. Click on Live Classes, and you can register there as remote student. And when you do, each week you'll get the PowerPoints for that week's two lessons, over a hundred pages every week, and each week you'll get the recorded audio lessons, two lessons each week, about 45 to 60 minutes each. So, even if you don't live near a live class, you can still be part of a live class by following along as I build the course week by week. And it's really affordable too. $85 for the 10-week, 20-lesson course. That's just $4.25 for each lesson. The price of a grande caramel macchiato at Starbucks. And the course won't put inches on your waist and pounds on your butt either. Now the deuterocanonical books are those books written primarily in Greek during the intertestamental period, that is, roughly 250 BC to AD 100, after Malachi, but before any of the New Testament books. Now, to understand why some books were included in the Old Testament and others weren't, we have to understand the concept of canon, what it is, how it was formed, and why some books made it in the canon while others didn't. The word canon derives from the Greek canon, which means a measuring rod or standard, perhaps related to the Hebrew kane, which means a reed. A canon is a set of standards considered to be cultural norms, the rules, if you will, by which a society of any type civil, professional, religious functions. The formation of a society's canon, be it oral or written, is a cultural phenomenon, a natural societal process. Now, for much of human history, the group's values, ideals, and normative behavior were defined, expressed, and passed on from one generation to the next through story, ritual, and behaviors that were either praised or condemned. Over time, those stories, rituals, and behaviors 
took on form and shape, gradually becoming a group's moral, ethical, and religious foundation, a foundation that expressed the group's core values and norms, a foundation upon which a society was built. Importantly, all such foundational values and norms in pre-literate societies were defined, expressed, and passed on orally by word of mouth. Well, because written language did not yet exist for them. The ancient Greek culture is a perfect example, and Homer's Iliad serves as the best paradigm. Now, I've taught both the Iliad and the Odyssey many times, and they are great works. Some of you have taken those courses with me, and a few of you have even joined me when I taught the Iliad at the archaeological site of ancient Troy in western Turkey. That was a big thrill for all of us. Well, the Iliad tells the tale of the Trojan War, a ten-year siege of the city of Troy by the Achaeans, a coalition of Greek states led by Agamemnon, king of Mycenae. Troy sat on the entrance to the Dardanelles, a narrow, 38-mile-long strait that connects the Sea of Marmara with the Aegean and the Mediterranean Seas to the south, allowing passage north to the Black Sea via the Bosphorus. Control the Dardanelles, and you control the power and wealth of the ancient Mediterranean world. Controlling that wealth is the political reason for the Trojan War. Getting back Helen of Troy, wife of Menelaus, Agamemnon's brother, who had run off with Paris, the prince of Troy, the youngest son of Priam, king of Troy, is the poetical reason for the Trojan War. Controlling wealth and regaining honor. Huh. Those are the basic ingredients of an epic drama. Traditionally, the Trojan War took place 1175 to 1184 BC, a couple of hundred years before David was king of Israel. Now, for many centuries, readers assumed that Homer wrote the Iliad shortly after the Trojan War. But in fact, as Harvard classic scholar Milman Perry demonstrated in the 1920s, the poem was first composed and performed orally until the 8th century BC, when it was finally written down. The Iliad's structure, its use of stock phrases like the swift runner Achilles, even when he's sitting still, or laughter-loving Aphrodite, even when she's painfully wounded, the reiteration of words, phrases, and verses, and the rigid use of a dactylic hexameter rhythmic scheme are all characteristic of oral poetry in a preliterate society. Yet, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey served as the most influential canon for educated Greek speakers of the Hellenistic world, along with the works of Euripides, Menander, Demosthenes, of Hesiod, Pindar, Sappho, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Aristophanes, Herodotus, Thucydides, and Aesop. They all served 
as prime examples of the genres and basic modes of Greek cultural life, of philosophy, epic, drama, poetry, and history. It was not a religious canon, to be sure, but the works of these authors expressed, and one might even say enshrined, the fundamental values of Greek society and culture. Such canons are common in every art and discipline. Today, for example, we've inherited the canon of Western concert hall music, enshrining Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, those I like to call the killer bees, Haydn, Handel, Chopin, Mahler, Mendelssohn, Mozart, Tchaikovsky, Verdi, Wagner. Go to any concert hall in America or Europe and you will certainly hear one or more of these composers performed. Rarely will you hear 20th century composers like David Del Tredici, George Crumb or George Rochberg or Peter Maxwell Davies. The canon of Western concert hall music, for the most part, has been closed for more than a century. <laughs> a modern day composer needs a bazooka to break into it. Literary canons offer another example. For generations, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Dunn, Herbert, Vaughan, Byron, Shelley, Keats, Dickens, Trollope, Hardy. They were all staples of university English literature programs. Every undergraduate and graduate student studied them. Not so today. In universities today, many of the required courses that included writers from the established canon have been replaced by courses like Gender, Ethnicity, Disability, and Sexuality Studies, Imperial, Transnational, and Postcolonial Studies, Gender Studies, and Interdisciplinary Studies. Now, I'm sure that there are plenty of excellent writers working in these categories who are well worth reading. But should they really replace Chaucer, Shakespeare, and Milton? It's inconceivable to me at least, that one could graduate as an English major and not take a single course on Chaucer, Shakespeare, or Milton. But then again, maybe I'm just a cranky old white guy. A canon, be it in music, literature, or scripture, does not come into being because it's declared from on high. No one can declare a work canonical if it has no canonical pedigree. One can only affirm a work's canonical status because it's already been accepted as canonical by consensus. And that's the flaw in requiring such politically correct literature courses as those I just mentioned. They were placed in the curriculum by political pressure and by the powers that be. And they will surely meet an early demise unless they make it into the literary canon by merit and by the consensus of educated readers over time. 
Likewise, a canon like that of Western concert hall music may well accept new composers and new compositions if time and the consensus of educated listeners deem them worthy. The point is this. Canons emerge. They are not declared. No canon is forever fixed, and all canons are in constant flux, although the pace may be glacial. Let's look at how one book of the Old Testament developed and became part of the Hebrew canon, that is, the book of Deuteronomy. In 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1, we read, In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign in the month of Ziv, the second month, Solomon began to build the temple. The 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt, the fourth year of Solomon's reign, would be 966 BC. If that's correct, then the exodus from Egypt would have taken place in 1446 BC. That would be the time of Moses, who at the exodus, Scripture tells us, was 80 years old. According to Scripture, Moses died at the age of 120, so his dates would be 1526 to 1406 BC. Now park those dates in your mind. Anchor them right there. The Hebrew language belongs to the Canaanite group of languages, and it didn't become a written language until the 10th century BC during the time of David and Solomon, nearly 400 years after Moses died. In fact, the earliest example of written Hebrew is on a recently discovered ceramic shard dating from the 10th century. And it is a very early form of written Hebrew, proto-Hebrew, if you will. That being the case, the story of Exodus, and indeed the entire Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, would have emerged as oral stories, much like the Iliad and the Odyssey, passed down from one generation to the next, finally emerging in written form at a much later time. The first evidence we have of a written Deuteronomy is in 2 Kings when an early version of Deuteronomy is found in the temple in 622 BC by the priest Hilkiah and given to Shaphan the scribe. That's when Josiah reigned as king of Judah. And we read in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 4 through 13. The high priest Hilkiah informed the scribe Shaphan I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, who read it. Then the scribe Shaphan went to the king and reported, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And then Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. Now when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his garments. 
The king then issued this command, go consult the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah about the words of this book that has been found. For the rage of the Lord has been set furiously ablaze against us because our ancestors did not obey the words of this book, nor do what is written in it. As a result, we read, the king then had all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem summoned before him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, priests, prophets, all the people, great and small. He read aloud to them all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the column and made a covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to observe his commandments, statutes, and decrees with his whole heart and soul and to reestablish the words of the covenant written in this book. And all the people stood by the covenant. By 622 BC, the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, Assyrian power was in rapid decline. Babylon would defeat Assyria 10 years later at the Battle of Nineveh in 612. Meanwhile, an independence movement was gaining strength at court in Jerusalem, a movement that expressed itself as a covenant relationship with Yahweh, God, as Israel's sole sovereign. Only 17 years after Josiah's reforms, however, in 605 BC, Judah and Jerusalem fell to the Babylonian Empire, and the people of Judah were taken captive to Babylon. The Babylonian captivity, 605 to 539 BC, prompted a whole lot of soul searching. How could this possibly have happened? Now, the obvious answer was that the Israelites violated their covenant with God, and God punished them for doing so. 1 Chronicles 9 verse 1 states plainly, Now Judah had been exiled to Babylon because of its treachery. But when Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, defeated Babylon in 539 BC and allowed the Jews to return home and rebuild, Deuteronomy acquired chapters 1 through 4 and 29 to 30 to form an instructive story of a people about to enter a promised land, a story that highlights the requirements of a reinstated covenant relationship with God updated to 4th century BC requirements, with an appropriate ending in chapters 31 to 34. Now, if that's the case, as the vast majority of Hebrew scripture scholars suggest, then the words that Moses spoke, as we read in Deuteronomy 1 verse 1, are the words of the literary portrayal of Moses, not the words of Moses, the historical figure. They are the ipsissima vox, the very voice, not the ipsissima Verba, the very words of Moses. And that distinction is important for two reasons. Number one, 
Crafting Deuteronomy in the very voice of Moses carries with it an implied divinely sanctioned authority for what's being said. And number two, it allows the authors to lift the narrative passage outside of time to create an historical continuum that spans countless generations, past, present, and future. Just as in the celebration of Passover, Deuteronomy elevates the Exodus story outside of history, allowing its readers, past, present, and future, to participate in the story itself. If Deuteronomy were simply the historical Moses speaking to the Israelites on the plains of Moab, it would make a good story, a bridge between the Exodus tale and the conquest of the Promised Land. But by the fourth century, authors, editors, and redactors had created the literary figure of Moses, allowing the story to transcend its historical roots and become a universal statement, the narrative of all liberation stories, the narrative of redemption itself. Later, when Ezra the scribe and priest returns to Jerusalem in 458 BC, it's this story that he reads to the returned exiles in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it's this story, the book of Deuteronomy, in its final finished form, that rises quickly to the top of Hebrew literature. An early entrant, viewed as sacred literature, into the canon of the Hebrew scriptures. Well, that's a preview of what we'll be covering in our new course, the Deuterocanonical Books. That, along with a detailed study of seven books that emerged between 250 and 100 BC. Seven books, plus some additions to Daniel and Esther, that were included among the Greek scriptures that Jesus and the early church would have known. Seven works that make up the Deuterocanonical Books. Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom, Sirach, and Baruch, along with additions to Daniel and Esther. I hope you join us in this really fascinating course, either in one of my four live classes or from anywhere in the world as a remote student. Well, that's it for this week. Wish me luck on the start of our new quarter, and please send your prayers our way. I'll see you again next week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.